Hey guys, it's RJ and Angie, and this is the Rich by Intention podcast. Our guest today is Julian and Kirsten Saunders. Julian and Kirsten are the couple behind the award-winning blog, Rich and Regular, and producers of the award-winning video series, Money on the Table. In this episode, we discuss their new book, Cashing Out, Win the Wealth Game by Walking Away, why they built their platform, and what it truly means to be counterculture. As always, thank you for tuning into this podcast. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Rich by Intention for money tips and motivation. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, guys, thank you so much for joining us. We're so, so, so excited to have you guys on our podcast. So for those who do not know you, for the for the limited amount of people who do not know you, yeah, can you? We, we've been following you out for a yes, long time. years. Like, <laughs> like we went to FinCon, like we didn't even have a website, but we was like, you know, we yes. gotta go meet you guys. Yes, and, we had to meet like you. That. Before we had the brand. So, you know, we really, really love everything you guys are doing. Yep. And, you know, before you introduce stuff, we just had to give you your flowers. Yes, right? yes. You Y'all are doing great guys. things out here. So so for those who do not know you, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Just first, just want to say, man, we love you guys and what you guys are doing. And uh, we remember first time we met you guys and it was a very affirming moment for us, not just because of the work that we do. But whenever you take something offline and into the real world and you start to see other people who look like you, sound like you, same questions, same issues and concerns, it just makes all of it feel very, very real. And so you guys are part of that. You're part of our story in a lot of ways as well. I'm Julian. I'm Kirsten. And it's not like we're about to kick off a podcast. (laughs) Welcome. And welcome. Uh, No. We are the co-authors of Cashing Out. We are the co-creators at richandregular.com. We are also the hosts and producers of a video series, Money on the Table, and hosts of the Rich and Regular podcast. Uh, that might be the last slash I put in my name for a long time, but uh, we do all of those things and more, I, I suppose. So you guys are doing such great work. Like RJ said, we've been following you guys for years. And so I want... If you can just share with our listeners what led you down the path to even start teaching others and educating people about financial literacy. Yeah, I think it came from a little bit of frustration and also a little bit of anxiety, at least on my part. (laughs) The frustration was that we had found this subcategory within the personal finance community, which at the time that we found it was still pretty new. It was pretty new to still be taking advice, financial advice from social networks, from anonymous blogs, from, you know, at the time, blogs were just people who had opinions, not necessarily giving out medical or financial. It's nothing like what you see today. And so we had found that community and used it to kind of fuel our debt-free journey But in that process, had also discovered the niches like real estate investing and financial independence. And so within those niches, you would find ways to really accelerate the same things that, say, like a Dave Ramsey or Susie Orman was talking about. But they would be like you could do it on your own. They would reveal ways that had no barriers to entry that you could acquire a real estate portfolio or automate your investing so that you could retire early. And so we would share this stuff like, oh, my God, this makes sense. 
and we would get no love. Like <laughs> it would be on the timeline. I could share a Kanye rant and I get all the comments. I could share any kind of celebrity gossip. I get all the comments when I shared these financial tips it would be nothing. And so that was part of it was just frustration. But then as we really started getting into it, like by the time we had paid off our personal debt and we're working on our mortgage, we realized that like, if we don't fix this, if we don't get people excited about the possibilities, we're going to be the only black people (laughs) at the end of this journey. We're going to be hanging out with all these early retired or entrepreneurial white folks. And there's nothing wrong with that. We just didn't want to be the only. Like that's the situation we were trying to leave from our corporate lives. And so those two things together kind of inspired us to tell our story because that's how we feel like people best learn. We're not natural educators. We don't come from teaching backgrounds, but we do know that people of color, communities of color, and just people in general rely on stories. And so we started our blog to just tell our story, to talk about all of the points of conflict we were meeting as we go through this simple formula of spend less than you make. Like that's, that is the key. Spend less than you earn and invest the difference. It sounds simple, but in practice, it's actually really complex because of all the interpersonal conflicts. And so we started writing about that in 2017. And to Julian's point, it's, it's, it's expanded into a bunch of different mediums to now it's just a financial media company, but we were motivated by not wanting to be like solo. <laughs> I think also when we were looking at a lot of the advice that was out there, I think naively there was an expectation of us to someday see our story or versions of our story on other platforms and it just wasn't happening. And then yeah. we realized actually like that's when you see that and you, you need to do something with that frustration. And so instead of expecting some of your favorite creators and platforms to tell more stories that look and sound like you, that's probably an indicator that you need to go ahead and just create it. But the other layer to that, and I think similar to in that, in that same vein was that there was just a lot of advice that was kind of blanket rules of thumb, but none of them really added in these layers that were unique to the Black experience. And so it's one thing to say, all you got to do is go get this job, but we don't really talk about the cost or some of the non-financial implications that get factored into that decision. And as a creative, there were a lot of really rich stories there, and it just felt like we weren't talking about that. So it's one thing to go get that big job, but let's talk about what it feels like when you're the only person in the room. Let's talk about dealing with those microaggressions at work and racism and all those other things, because it's not as simple as just going to get the job to bring the money home Mm -hmm. and assuming that none of the other things kind of happen, right? So all of those things, I think, had an impact, not just on on quality of life, but I think on people's financial lives. And so we figured there was something there and we wanted to do something about it. So, you know, we are so excited about your new book and we've ordered, we've bought our copies in audible form and in hard copy. Yeah, we had- Yep, of course. <laughs> we know what, if you guys are saying it, then it needs to be said and it's important. So we thank you guys for just putting this out into the world for the masses to consume. And so, you know, on that note, I want to, I want from your perspective and Julian, you already alluded to some of this, but what are some of the other unique set of challenges that black people face when it comes to finances? You mentioned about the jobs, but what else can you like lay it out for our listeners? What is that black experience when it comes to pursuing financial freedom? I think there are two just off the top of my head, right? I mean, there are obviously more, but I think that there are, there are at least 
two. I might slip a third one in there. The first one, I think, is the boogeyman that we still deal with, which is racism. We deal with that in work. We deal with it from white colleagues who just quite frankly, in many cases, are not familiar with working with people like us. Uh, Certainly as you ascend higher in some of these organizations throughout corporate America. I think the other layer to that is a term uh, called the Sam's generation. And so when you combine a couple of insights You've got the sandwich generation, which is uh, the struggle that I want to say maybe 40 or 50 percent of Americans deal with who are people who are frustrated and financially responsible for caring for aging parents while also uh, caring for young children. It's very difficult to think about what to do next. Do I invest in myself? Do I pay it back out of sort of a social and cultural obligation or do I pay it forward and start doing what I fundamentally understand as the right thing to do, the rational thing to do, which is to continue to invest for the betterment of my children and the future. But then when you pair that with the existing racial wealth gap, which is this disproportionate amount of wealth when you look at the average or even the median uh, Black family versus, let's say, our white counterparts, the combination of those things for Black professionals who are the people who are more often than not the, the financial engine of their family tree it translates to a lot of pressure, a lot of really difficult decisions, right? And even if you just look at the math, like if we are disproportionately, by me, I mean Black families, disproportionately impacted by the wealth gap, that means that we have to provide financial support for our parents earlier than our white peers. It doesn't mean that our white peers are exempt from that, but they might be able to get through their 50s. They've already gotten through their 30s and their 40s you know, investing in their 401ks, buying a home and doing all those things before that big bill for mom and dad or grandparents, things kick in. And so all of those things combined, we saw were points of tension when we would share our story, when we would talk to people, when we would say, well, why can't you just save more? Why can't you invest more? Why can't you be a bit more aggressive in your approach? And it was more often than not, because to do so would be to create another layer of sort of disruption in their lives. And that's when we realized, wow, it's actually a lot bigger than just financial education. Wow, that's important. We're already talking to those people who are smart and who get it, but there are other layers and things that are factoring into that. And then the third one, just because I promised I would squeeze it in there, there's just other broader social issues that we were paying attention to, such as the rise of the Black woman, right? More degrees being conferred to Black women than any other group in the country, which naturally translates to better job opportunities, which now has an impact on a social dynamic, because especially when it comes to Black women, they are far more likely to be the breadwinners or be a sort of combined breadwinner in their household. Yet this was creating some tension in the household. I had plenty of homeboys who were fine with that, but I got a whole heap of them that just kind of felt some kind of way about it. And as a result, it impacted the relationships and some of the conflict there. So and women of, too, women having hard times in the dating pool. Like they want to be in a double income house. They want to move forward with having children. But like, if you don't feel like you and your partner are on similar economic footing or at least on the same financial page, it becomes very difficult. And so there was that happening as well, where it's just like, you've got all these compounding effects that will ultimately affect what the Black family looks like in the United States. And we just became really curious about if you solve the money part of that equation, what else unlocks when, you know, when you think about it? Yeah, it's a lot. It's heavy. (laughs) There's a lot of data and a lot of pressure, but it was something that we 
knew that the stakes were pretty high and we just felt like we needed to like one, make sure that we can get to a point where we can devote our lives to trying to contribute towards finding a solution. But more importantly, we just needed to act and serve as role models to show people that, hey, if you make these kinds of decisions, this is what your, might, your life might be able to look like. Yeah, that's an amazing point that you made more specifically on the sandwich points. And what I think about is just like, it's tough, especially if you're married, right? Because you have in-laws and you have parents and just navigating those conversations I'm sure it's very difficult. And I'm thinking that, like, how can someone who are in the, in the same shoes navigate that with their partner? Yeah, because we're in that place where we're trying to plan for our parents and for our children, too. And like, it is tough. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because like even the people who don't think they have to think about their parents, most of them are incorrect. They actually do. They probably should still be having these conversations, like unless you are in the very, very wealthy and the very, very unique a lot of our boomers are flying through their retirements faster than they would have anticipated. And with our crumbling health infrastructure, like sometimes it's not a matter of having not done the right things in advance. It's just that the game changed and you didn't really change with it. But yeah, like to your point, it's, it's tough and there's no blueprint. Like there's no real quick tip or suggestion to give people other than to kind of invite the conflict into your relationship, know that it's going to be there and know that you're going to have the same conversations over and over again and to accommodate people changing their minds, right? We might, we decided something, you know, four years ago that today just didn't make any sense, right? We decided that we were going to pay off one of our properties and that was always going to be the place that we kept in our portfolio for his mom in case something happened, she would always have a roof over our head. And that decision was a financial burden on us for several years until we realized, like, actually, do we trust ourselves to figure it out? Do we trust ourselves to have the right community to ask what our options are? Do we trust ourselves to get a little scrappy <laughs> and to, to recognize that she still has her, you know, her wits about her, that she can she can help us think through a creative solution? Yeah, and I was going to say, I think also just a matter of giving ourselves the license to slow down on our yeah. journey, right? Like just recognizing that it's not a race. You don't need to compare yourself to anyone else. And, you know, as people who are fortunate to still have all of their parents alive while having a young child, it's actually really important to develop some of those memories, right? And so if I need to make a trade-off between investing 20 or even $30,000 in a year versus also giving my son an amazing opportunity to build relationships, meaningful, memorable relationships with his grandparents. And in some cases, even his great-grandparents, we're willing to make those trade-offs right now without locking ourselves into such an aggressive investment or investment plan. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of just factoring in all of those qualitative uh, factors into your financial life as well. So as you know, listeners get your book and they're consuming everything in the book and, you know, you know, I know you guys put so much good information in there, but like, what are some of the key pieces of information that you would tell our audience if they want to, you know, create a plan, a solution to kind of help them as they are planning their financial future, you know, as they are kind of, you know, combating those unique challenges that we as Black people experience? What are some of those key things, just one to two, three, four, five things that you would recommend? <laughs> <laughs> All of them, right? 50, 11 things. <laughs> Read the book. <laughs> I think the first one, so the book is 
it's kind of divided into two different parts. The first part is called the wake up call. And it was important for us to spend the first four or five chapters just confronting the reader with some uncomfortable truths because we're all told narratives about our money, our work ethic, our greatness, our excellence, and the data, because there's data at this point, we've now, you know, been around long enough to see the data suggests that the outcomes of all of those things that we learn, work twice as hard for half as much, put your head down and just do it, just figure it out. Like some of that stuff hasn't worked out well for us. We can now see the outcome of those decisions. And so we talk about what happens when you make enough money to be considered middle class, but don't give your income a purpose. And you just end up buying things instead of actually buying your freedom. We talk about the challenges in corporate America and how diversity and equity and inclusion DEI kind of strategies haven't really worked for Black people. We talk about looking at your career in a way that starts with the begin, begins with the end in mind. And so there's just, there's some uncomfortable truths that you have to be willing to address and some unlearning that needs to happen. I think people want to jump right into like, tell me exactly what to do. And actually our advice is to, you need to unlearn some things first. And then the second half is when we talk about the daily struggle. The, the title of that half is called the daily struggle. And we talk about the things you need to learn about how to invest, how to build a community outside of your friends and family, how to navigate a life where you're living counterculturally. And I think that's important that we call it a daily struggle because it sounds very simple, like I said at the beginning, but it's actually quite complex. And if you don't know that, it's like trying to run a marathon cold. <laughs> like If you don't know that you got 15, 30 years in the game, there's going to be aches and pains. You need to proactively prepare against injury. If you don't know this stuff, then you set yourself up for success. And I think that's what happens. People get a good two or three year run financially, but then they fall back. Something happens. And it's like, well, yeah, the goal is to have the stamina and momentum to make investing a long game in your life. And that literally solves 90% of the financial problems that you may encounter. Can you said something that really stood out to me? And that was living counterculturally. Can you just dive into that a little bit and tell us what that means to live counterculturally? Yeah, I mean, it's no secret that the U.S. is an incredibly capitalistic society. We are addicted to work in a way that other countries aren't. And all this data is in our book. And not only are we addicted to work in ways that other countries are, we don't have the same support systems for families. We don't have the same support systems for women, for people who may be experiencing disability. We just don't have a social safety net. And so... Living counterculturally means instead of expecting a social safety net from the government or instead of agreeing to a lifetime of work with no real guarantee of retirement, that while you're working, while you're in your earning years, you are actually setting that up for yourself, right? You're, you're, you're self-funding your life insurance, you're self-funding your, your real estate plan, you're creating a plan to age in place if you don't plan on going to a nursing home, you're buying all of the different financial products that will allow you to live comfortably instead of waiting on a larger solution that applies to everyone. Because again, the data suggests that even those larger solutions are falling apart at this point. I think being countercultural also includes a couple of other layers to it. So in addition to American culture and us being very much addicted to work, I think we're also just addicted to consumerism. And there's good mm -hmm. reason for that. It's because 
people like who I used to be, professional marketers, are, are very skilled at enticing us on very, very deep levels with wanting more. And it's never enough. Next year, there's going to be a better, bigger, sleeker version of something that you believe is now core to who you are. I think on average, uh, Americans are shown 6,000 to 10,000 advertisements a day. If you watch the sports uh, you know, a game or something like that, you'll probably see an example of that with logos and advertisements being flashed literally every five seconds, right? And so all of these things are designed to just keep you wanting more. Uh, and so it actually becomes really difficult to dig deep and have some willpower to be able to then make different decisions. So there's a lot of that, which is just normal. We've come to literally now enjoy commercials and view it as a form of entertainment, right? So this is how deep consumer culture is for us. But I think also for Black people, you know, I think one of the biggest ingredients in Black culture is this idea of Black excellence. And we we kind of go after that term a little bit in the book, because to Kirsten's point, we have to ask ourselves, where is the evidence of this excellence? Like, how is it translated into something meaningful for us as our families and our communities? And we just haven't seen that. We, and, and certainly haven't seen that with respect to wealth. So we have to ask ourselves some of those uncomfortable conversations, like where is this endless resilience getting us? It's it's contributing to uh, the disruption of our families. It's apparently having a negative impact on our net worth at large. And so why do we take so much pride in this term? And I think a lot of it actually has to do with like the lack of language and nuance in American culture as well. In Japan, we talk about this. There's a term called koroshi, which is a death by overwork. And I remember learning about this in 2007 when I studied abroad and spent some time in Japan. They were trying to get us to understand and wrap our heads around Japanese people and uh, the idea of the businessman and all of those things. And it's actually very similar to Black excellence. There's a group of people who take tremendous pride in the work that they do. It is core to their identity. So when they struggle or fail in those things, it leads, unfortunately, to really negative outcomes. In some cases, it leads to suicide. In many cases, it leads to exhaustion. Now, we don't talk about work or the impacts of work like that or here in America, but we also know that heart disease and addiction to alcohol and drugs and the impact that it has on marriages and quality of life and all of those things are pretty much tied to the fact that we consume way more than we need. And we are completely have put work at the center of our lives. And so when you add on top of that, this layer of Black people who feel like they are going to be the first one in, the last one out, working nights and weekends with all the laptops, all the devices to the detriment of our health and our family structure and apparently our wealth, you really just kind of have to question why we take such pride in these core parts of the culture. And so that to me is what we mean when we say countercultural. You have to be willing to go to the heart of some of the things that you think are core to your identity as a citizen, as a as a father, mother, etc., and strip away the things that might actually be counterproductive, which is really, really hard. But it's helpful when you have a guide and it's even easier when you have a community of people that you can relate to that can help cheer you on and guide you along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, those great points. And, wow. and it's it is really hard to go against the grain. Right. And mm-hmm. feel 
that it's normal to do so. And I think you guys are doing a great job of showing yeah. that, hey, you don't have to do certain a certain way to have a certain outcome. There's many ways to produce, you know, the, the fruits of your labor without changing the dynamics of your family. So even for me, I mean, I probably use the term black excellence and now I got to like rethink that. Like I, I'm I will be diving in, guys like, you know, y'all are just that's deep. Like as you guys were speaking I just didn't realize to the levels of, you know, just trying to like think like, why do we use that type of language? What does that really mean? You know what I mean? If if we're not producing the outcomes at the level that are excellent. Right. So y'all are just doing great things. We're so excited. Did you have one more question? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. And, and I wanted to ask a question. Right. Because we had we had conversations around regarding your journey to writing a book. But now that you're at the end of the tunnel, like what did you learn about yourselves mm-hmm writing this book. That's good. You go first. No. <laughs> Hopefully I can edit out this pause. I remember being asked this question before and I don't remember what I said. And that's not to say that I don't think I meant what I said, but I, I'll, I will start. I learned throughout this process several things. I, I learned how naturally prone I am to overwork uh, as well. Even now, I, I really rely on Kirsten and my son to remind me to be more present, right? So again, as someone who literally wrote the book on it, I'm telling you, I still struggle with it because I'm so wired to work uh, and to do everything to the highest levels. But I will also say I learned a lot about the traumas that I experienced as a kid growing up in Brooklyn in, you know, during the crack era and the things that I've normal normalized from drugs and violence and absent fathers and all of those things have without question shaped the way that I view the world. And so I have to really be conscious of those things because it impacts, you know, the types of experiences that I want to provide my son. It impacts the the levels of support that I feel obligated to provide to family members and even people. Like sometimes I can literally just put other people's needs ahead of my own to the detriment of our own business and our family, because I am so deeply concerned with the the pace in which it feels like our community is going in. And we liken it to like climbing a mountain, right? It was like, you're climbing this mountain, but the higher you get uh, on this mountain, you're looking up and you're seeing the clouds and you're seeing the snow. It's like the, the whiter literally and and figuratively, the wider your world becomes. And I look back down and I'm like, man, my people are still down there. And so it's like, all right, what can we do? Let's let's build up a little something right here so that when they get to this level, they know how to navigate the next couple of steps or those kinds of things. So for me, I, I learned a lot about my, my intent and not my intent, but like my, my, my background and I learned a lot about my tendencies and how they impact my, my financial life. Yeah, I would say mine is probably similar. I had to, and I'm still confronting some of the attitudes that I have on the other side of the coin around endless income opportunity, the implications of having debt, the implications of even I was, I was a church girl. So I grew up a lot in the church, even the implications of like my religious background and how that affects how I view money, how I view my circumstances, what role I play in solving my own problems versus like kind of releasing it to this foreign energy source. Like I've just had to confront a lot of things that were hindering my financial progress that had nothing to do with financial literacy. It's made me realize like just how strong American culture is. 
and how it's almost like an invisible force that a lot of us don't recognize. If Julian is a, it comes from an immigrant family, both his mom and dad came over from Jamaica and they're very clear about their Jamaican biases. They're running jokes about Jamaicans and their work ethic and like his mom's, you know, she tells the story of coming over here with nothing and figuring it out with America. Like it's been so ingrained and it's so internalized in our parents and our pastors and in every kind of role model figure you come across that you almost have to like, to Julian's point, go back and assess like, okay, this is what I believed. Did it work out for me? And that process is just, it's a lot. Like it's, it's where you might invest in, expert help, a therapist or a coach or, you know, a writing buddy, a walking group, whatever it is. But like, that's the real work. That's to me has been the hardest part. The math is simple, but like the other parts that prevent you from recreating the same mistake that you recovered from is an ongoing thing for us, which is why we kind of put the rituals in the book. It's like, I used to think I would be able to just automate it and forget it and leave it. And now it's like, no, like I have to literally be engaged with my financial decisions and the results that those decisions got me like on a regular basis. It just doesn't stop. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, a never ending journey. And I, I think we always think about some end point, but it, yeah. it's, it's always changing, right? Like the always. only thing that we can control is like, you know, the process to that change, right? You have to love the process. And I am someone who is outcome and reward driven. (laughs) So I love the outcome. If I said I was going to save a hundred dollars, like once I get that hundred dollars, I don't care if I hated the process, but after a while you realize you have to learn that this is what it feels like. I love it. This is normal. Like it does, it's not always happy, but like it is the process and I have to get comfortable with it. Yep. Yeah, guys, that, yeah, you guys are amazing. I love your whole journey and and what led to this book that you created, Cashing Out. We love, you know, listening to your voices on Audible and just like, yeah, that's our family right there. So, (laughs) and, you know, going through the self discovery, the self journey, right? Like it is a battle, right? And, you know, sometimes you got to go against what you believe during Mm -hmm. this process, but you guys, you know, laid it out so perfectly. And I love specifically like the 15 year career, right? I'm trying to see if I can do that, but (laughs) it is, it's it's feasible things that you have in there that I think everyone Mm -hmm. can take away and do one thing better than they did the day before, or at least it allow you to ask the question, why, why have I been doing things this way? And I think you have made that or cemented that in the book. So we love you guys and we love everything. Everything you're doing, everything you represent and doing. Yep. Thank you so much. So where can people find the book to purchase it today? Amazon is probably the easiest. You can go uh, to barnesandnoble.com. You can also check in store. You might want to check online to see if they have copies in store. They typically do. But Target, Walmart, pretty much anywhere books are sold, uh, you can get a copy of Cashing Out. Uh, Audible, uh, if you have Amazon Prime, I believe they're still giving out free uh, trials to Audible. So just remember to set that 30-day you know, cancellation <laughs> if you don't want it. But you can certainly do that if you want to be frugal about it. Your local library, you know, and even if you don't have it in your local library, you can... Just become a member and request a copy and they should be able to make that happen for you as well. But pretty much anywhere books are sold, you can get a copy of Cashing Out. I just want to add that, Mm -hmm. you know, this is a huge moment, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's not a lot of people that look like us that write about financial literacy. And so I just want our listeners to know that this is a trailblazing moment 
for our community. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we want to encourage you to really pick up this book, support it. There's so much information in this book for you to just take action on. So we are so excited to support you both. And we're just so excited to even more excited to see where you guys are going to go from here. So thank you for coming on our podcast and sharing your story, sharing your journey. And for those who want to connect with you, where can they find you? Yeah, you can find us at richandregular.com. And then we also have all of the social medias, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube at Rich and Regular. So look for us there. Yes, yes. Thanks okay. so much, guys. Thanks the for rich, having us. The rich family, right? Because we rich by the <laughs> uh, This has been a long time in the making, but we love you guys yep. and we wish you excellence. Thank you. <laughs> with outcomes, which we know there there'll be excellence with outcomes. Excellence with outcomes. I love it. I love it. Oh man, this was great, guys. Thank yes. you so much. Oh, thanks for thanks having us. us. Thank it you. Was Thank you for tuning into this episode. If you like what you heard, hit the subscribe button and leave a review. Follow us on Instagram at Rich by Intention for money tips and inspiration. 